Will you please pray with me? Heavenly Father, today we thank you for the way that you sent your Son to live among us, to share our pain and suffering, to give his life and to be raised again for us and for the world. Stir in us a greater appreciation of what he has done for us so that we might live our lives in such a way that people around us wonder, what makes these people so different? So that the only response to that question is the name of Jesus. For it's in his name we we pray. Amen. Well, we've started this sermon series following the uh, Alpha and Youth Alpha themes from each week. Uh, Two weeks ago, we looked at the theme, is there more to life than this? Is life just about chasing after the next thing, the next paycheck, the next relationship, the next, you know, or is there more to life than this? And last week, we explored who Jesus is. Both in Jesus' day and today, People have had lots of opinions about Jesus. Some have called him a prophet or a preacher. Some say that he's a guru or a miracle worker. Others point to him being a revolutionary or the founder of a religion. And still others, as Jesus' disciples said in our gospel reading today, said that people thought he was an inspirational person come back from the dead. Moses, or Elijah, or John the Baptist, or one of the prophets. But when Jesus asked that all-important question, who do you say that I am? Peter said, you're the Messiah. You're the Christ, the one we've been waiting for. Years earlier, when John the Baptist was baptizing Jesus in the Jordan River, He pointed to him and told his his own disciples, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So today's theme is, Why did Jesus die? Well, the simple answer that the kids pointed out today was, Because he loves us. Jesus died to take away our sin. He died to save us from sin. Our sin. Now, sin is not just bad things that we say or do or think. It's a posture of our hearts. Instead of being turned upward to God in praise and being turned outward to others, sin is a state of being turned in upon ourselves. It's an inward focused posture. Sin makes us seek only what we want, not what God wants or what would help others. Sin is also a power that enslaves us. Jesus said whoever commits sin is a slave to sin. Sin is addictive. It takes root in our lives and holds us in its grip. Sin also creates pollution. When a river gets polluted, it becomes unhealthy and um, unlivable and even toxic. Every year, uh, 
excess nitrates that flow down the Mississippi River get down into the Gulf of Mexico and form a dead zone uh, the size of uh, Connecticut uh, where no, nothing can live at the bottom of the ocean because the bacteria or the, um, the algae that has bloomed has eaten up all of the oxygen down there. Our actions, even way up here, have an effect all the way down there. What we do impacts the world around us. Our sin not only pollutes the environment, but our hearts and our lives and our relationships. Sin also builds a partition. It creates a dividing wall between us and other people and between us and God. It cuts us off from each other. When you cut a branch off of a vine, the leaves quickly wither. Jesus warns us in John 15, a branch cannot bear fruit unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. When sin turns us in upon ourselves, enslaves us, pollutes our hearts and lives, and builds a wall between us and God, we find ourselves cut off from the source of life. We discover that sin has a penalty, a death sentence. In Romans 6, Paul says, The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus is Lord. Death could not hold him. It was part of God's plan all along. One of Cassidy's favorite verses in the Bible is Jeremiah 29.11. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, to give you a hope and a future. Jeremiah spoke those words to people who were living in exile in Babylon. Because of their own sin, because of how they had turned away from God, they experienced the consequences of it. The penalty was that they had to go into kind of a a 70-year time out in Babylon And Jeremiah spoke to them with words of hope that it would not always be that way, but that God would open up a way for them to come back home. Last Wednesday's uh, Youth Alpha discussion page uh, said this, although sin has real consequences, Jesus' death and resurrection are the solution to the problem of sin. The cross shows us that God loves us, that death has been defeated, the power of sin has been broken, and we can have a relationship with our Heavenly Father. Now, some sermons stop right there. They boil down the good news to the assertion that we have a sin problem and Jesus is the solution. And that's true. That's absolutely true. But the problem of sin is not the whole story of what God is doing. The Bible doesn't begin with 
chapter 3 of Genesis where Adam and Eve sin and rebel against God by trying to become like God themselves. No, it begins in chapters 1 and 2 with, new cre- with creation where God made all things and looked at everything that he had made and said, it is good. In the same way, the Bible doesn't end with Jesus' death and resurrection, with you know, the plot lines all neatly tied up and everybody lives happily ever after, at the, like at the end of a movie. Jesus' death and resurrection is the center of the Bible, what everything points toward and what everything flows from. The Bible doesn't just end with Jesus taking care of sin. It ends in chapter 21 and 22 of Genesis with new creation. Just like it starts with creation, it ends with new creation. The new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. Everything being made new. God restoring all things to unity through Christ. God's purpose and plan is to unite all things in Christ. In Colossians 1, Paul says, God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. God isn't just working to save individual souls, but to redeem the entire universe, to set things right and to restore his creation to even greater glory than it had in the first place. Have you ever watched one of those extreme home makeover shows where a swarm of contractors comes in and transforms an entire house in just a matter of days? Uh, Of course, during the construction, the house looks like an absolute mess. Uh, Sometimes they even drive in a, a, a Bigfoot truck or something like that to drive over the old house and uh, completely smash it to bits. And, and while they're working on the house for all those days, the owners and the, work, and the workers wonder how it will ever take shape. But the final reveal, when they drive the bus away, uh, shows the house changed into something far more beautiful than it had ever been before. The mess was part of the process. The, the men of Emmanuel have, uh, la- just yesterday, started a new series by Max, Lucat- Max Lucado said, saying, you'll get through this. That study encourages us that no matter what we go through, God is with us and will even bring good out of our pain. Max has a, a little survivor's creed that he talks about throughout the series, saying, you'll get through this. It won't be quick. It won't be painless. But God will use this mess for good. The main story that Max draws on in this series is the biblical story of the dysfunctional family of Joseph and his 11 brothers. 
His father's favoritism made his brothers so jealous that they threw him into a pit and then sold him into slavery. Joseph was taken to Egypt, and, but there he found such favor with his master that he was put in charge of his master's entire household. Well, it didn't end up all roses right there. Then Joseph was falsely accused of a crime and thrown in prison. But he gained so much respect there that he was put in charge of the prison. And eventually, Pharaoh elevated him to being second in command of all of Egypt. He was put in charge of their agriculture, and his leadership saved their entire region from starvation, including his own family. His brothers came looking for food. And Joseph eventually welcomed them in. Joseph forgave his brothers. When they confessed what they had done, he said, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Max Lucado points out that that word meant in that phrase, in the Hebrew, it has the same meaning as to weave. You wove this. When you threw me into that pit and sold me into slavery, you wove that for evil. But God wove it for good. There's a beautiful old poem called The Master Weaver's Plan. It says, My life is but a weaving between my God and me. I cannot choose the colors he weaveth steadily. Oft times he weaveth sorrow, and I in foolish pride forget he sees the upper and I the underside. Not till the loom is silent and the shuttles cease to fly will God unroll the canvas and reveal the reason why. The dark threads are as needful in the weaver's skillful hand as the threads of gold and silver in the pattern he has planned. He knows, he loves, he cares. Nothing this truth can dim. He gives the very best to those who leave the choice to him. Sometimes authors create an entire world as the setting for their stories. J.R.R. Tolkien wrote an enormous uh, backstory for Middle-earth, the world of The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings. Many of those older tales and legends are collected in a book that Tolkien called The Silmarillion. In the very first tale of The Silmarillion, Tolkien imagines the creator at the beginning of time first making holy ones who were with him before he made anything else. The creator taught them themes of music. They sang each alone and then together, in unison and then in harmony that grew and grew. But the greatest of the holy ones wanted to increase the power and the glory of his own part, and so he wove into his music darker themes that conflicted with the original intent of the music. Those around him were disturbed. Their music falters. 
And others were drawn into his discordant music, which fought against the Creator's theme until a storm was raging all around the Creator's throne. But the Creator rose and smiled. He raised first one hand and then the other, and a new music began, which Tolkien describes as deep and wide and beautiful, but slow and blended with an immeasurable sorrow from which its beauty chiefly came. The other rebellious music had now achieved a unity of its own, but it was loud and vain and endlessly repeated, and it had little harmony, but rather a clamorous unison as of many trumpets braying upon a few notes. And it tried to drown the other music by the violence of its voice, but it seemed that its most triumphant notes were taken by the other and woven into its more solemn pattern. At last, the Creator rose again, His face terrible to see, lifted both hands, and with a final massive piercing chord, the music ceased. Then He spoke to the Holy Ones, including the rebellious one, and showed them how their music had formed a world with all their themes woven together into a greater whole. Tolkien's tale is a beautiful picture of what the one true God is doing in the universe. In Jesus, the master weaver himself stepped into the tapestry. He himself entered our story. On the cross, Jesus wove the scarlet thread of his own lifeblood through the dark strands of our rebellion and brokenness and pain. The Apostle Paul said, God's love is shown in that even while we were God's enemies, Christ died for us. Jesus died for you and for me and for the whole world. He absorbed all the pain and violence we could dish out and started setting things straight. He paid the penalty of our sin. He broke its power. He cleansed its pollution, tore down the partition, and restored the posture of our hearts to one of praise. The beauty of the tapestry is only enhanced by the sorrow that it took to weave it. God is still weaving. Amen.